0: So as we look at the Church of Laodicea, I just want to get it on the tape. It is the church that was known as being lukewarm. But I also want you to understand that the term Laodicea itself comes from two Greek terms. One is a noun, laos, which means people, and then the verb dekao, which means to rule. So this is a city that believed in the rule of the people, a, a democracy, so to speak. But it really spoke to the self-sufficiency of the city And that type of viewpoint filtered into the church, as you will see. In fact, one of the reasons I think the people in the church and the town itself are so self-sufficient was because they were the wealthiest of all of the seven cities. The reason they were so wealthy is they had a wool industry that was second to none. The quality of their wool was better than any other wool that you could find. And they also had a lot of medicinal properties and different products that they would sell. So they became very wealthy off of those things, and therefore they were very self-sufficient. In fact, what's interesting is when I was studying this, you remember how some weeks ago I talked about that earthquake that happened in 17 AD? Does everybody remember that? And it devastated a bunch of cities. Laodicea was so wealthy that they actually contributed their own money to rebuild other cities. In fact, all the other cities received Roman empire help. Not so with Laodicea. They didn't need it. So these guys must have been really, really wealthy indeed. Laodicea also was a natural fortress. They had wonderful fortifications. The only problem with Laodicea was its water supply. Its water supply was its Achilles heel. It had to be piped in from nearby Hierapolis. The reason why the water supply is important to think about Is because their water supply was lukewarm. And it was so horrible, the average Laodicean would probably have grumbled about it daily. You know how you and I as Minnesotans grumble about the Vikings? You know, it's just part of the ethos. If the Vikings are playing, they're either losing or they're not going to the Super Bowl, or if they're in the Super Bowl, they lose. It's just a it's a Minnesota ethos, right? Well, Let's get that on tape right Yeah, I might just strike that one from the record, but you're right, I I concur. Mike Quinn just alluded to there's other problems with the Vikings as well. <laughs> but yeah, so Laodicea grumbled about their water. Is it and, warm because of uh, quality? Or? Yeah, I'll explain it later. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But yeah, it's a big problem with them. Now, how do they come to faith? Well, more than likely, when Paul is in Ephesus, you can read about this in Colossians 1 when he's in Ephesus, he has the sidekick, Epaphras. He more than likely was the one, I think, who brought the gospel to Laodicea. Now, what was the problem in Laodicea fundamentally? Why did Christ have to rebuke them? And remember, Christ has no good thing to say about the church at Laodicea. Nothing commendable about them. They're only worthy of being spit out at the time he's writing. Well, I think that they suffered spiritual blindness by appealing to either angels or other deities to preserve wealth. And therefore, Christ was just one among many. Now, let me just set the stage for you. Think back, you're living in Asia Minor, and around the time of the diaspora of the Jews, remember after 586 BC, Jerusalem is destroyed, the Jews are dispersed, they end up going into Babylonian captivity for 70 years, But when Cyrus, the Medo-Persian, allows them to return home, not all of them go home. Many of them disperse through the wider world. Well, the Jews, many of them settle in Asia Minor, and some of their false, syncretistic religious views end up infiltrating into Asia Minor. One of the big belief systems that they brought with them from Persia was that the whole earth was governed by the demonic realm. In fact, they believed, according to Clinton Arnold, that there were something called 36 astral deacons. Now, think of the number 36. They believed that these circled the sphere of the globe. By the way, it's more evidence that they knew that the world was round. It wasn't flat. But they believed that these demons controlled 10 degrees of the celestial sphere. So that's why you'd have 36. 36 times 10 degrees, you have 360 degrees all the way around the globe. So the idea then was that these demons controlled your fate. They controlled whether or not you are going to have a bumper crop. They were able to control whether your business thrived or your family did well. And so what they did, these people in Asia Minor, is they thought we need to control these demons, and therefore we're going to appeal to the good angels. And we're going to do various religious practices by in which we can conjure up favor from the angelic realm to protect us From these demons. The problem with the church at Colossae is that the church at Colossae, and the reason I mentioned Colossae is because they're so close to Laodicea, they end up adopting these same practices. So they began with Jesus, and they said, yeah, we were saved by him, but we have real problems in our daily lives. Jesus isn't sufficient to help us have a bumper crop. So yeah, we began with Jesus, but Now we're going on to angels or perhaps another local deity. And Jesus just became one among many. And so the lukewarm idea is that they weren't, the reason why they were called lukewarm is that they weren't zealous for Christ. Why were they not zealous for Christ? Because he's just one among many. They yawned at him. Yeah, we got Jesus, but we also have this God and that angel and all these practices and so what? And so this is, I think, the crisis in evangelicalism today. Yes, people begin with Jesus and their justification, if they even understand that correctly. But then so quickly in the sanctification, they go on to some other plan. And that's what Bob has been trying to warn us about in his discussion through sanctification all these weeks and months. We can't go on to someone or something else. If you began with Christ you finish with Christ. If he's sufficient to save, he's, provi- he's also sufficient to provide. He's sufficient to sanctify. He's sufficient in all things. So that's how I think we have to think of the issue here. Now let me begin by showing you verse 14. Christ is going to give you his credentials. And by the way, this verse is parallel to Colossians 1.18, the, the same idea. And that's why I think we should see a link between Colossians in the issues at Laodicea. What Christ is going to lay out for himself here is that he's unique. Remember, the Laodiceans don't think he's unique. They're yawning at him. They've got angels. They've got a very other deity to help them. So Jesus lays out his credentials. Verse 14 of Revelation 3, he says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, now let me just stop there just one last time. We've done this seven times, but... Remember the angel, angelos, that term can be also rendered messenger. And more than likely, I think that that was probably a human messenger here that was being given these words to take to the church. So you have a human messenger, more than likely, who was to go to Laodicea. And this is what Christ wants to say to them. He says, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Notice Jesus refers to himself as The Amen. Now, you and I often say that, of course, after our prayers. Here, the term Amen is taken from the Hebrew. Amen, which means truly or verily. And the ancients would say Amen, the Hebrews would, to verify that this was, in fact, a word from God. So, for instance, let's say you had a rabbi living in Jesus' day and he's doing some teaching about the word, he would have students that would follow him, and after the rabbi would get done teaching, the students would say, amen. And what they were saying was, Rabbi, this is truly a word from God. Now remember, what does Jesus do? He begins oftentimes his sayings or his teachings by saying, amen, amen. And remember, he is one in the temple that the Jews marveled at because he taught as one who had authority. And the reason he had such authority is because he was the eschatological prophet to come. In fact, he's God himself. And so when he says amen, this is truly a word from God, he has all the authority within himself to say so because he is God. And so here he declares himself to be the amen. And then you see the next phrase, the faithful and true witness. This is something called an appositional phrase. Okay, now what's an appositional phrase? It merely clarifies what it means to be the amen. If I said, um, Peter, William, comma, a great guy and a deacon at Gospel of Grace Fellowship, comma, went to the football game. Notice in the commas, a great guy and a deacon at Gospel of Grace. That would be an oppositional phrase further describing who Peter is. And so you'll see these oftentimes in Scripture. He's the amen. Well, what does it mean to be the amen? Well, he's the faithful and true witness. When he says this is the word of God, you can bank on it because he is God. That's the implication. Notice he also refers to himself as the beginning. Now, here's where we want to be a little careful. The beginning here isn't that Jesus is the first thing created, but rather he is the source or the originator of the rest of all of creation. So, the reason he's using this phrase, the beginning, the RK, is because Jesus has to show his uniqueness to the Laodiceans who are yawning, right? To the Laodiceans, he's just one among many. So this is the same term that you're going to see used in Colossians 1.18 on the next slide. Why? Because at Colossae, they had the same issue. Jesus was just one among many, all right? So he is the source or the originator of everything. He's not necessarily, in fact, not necessarily, he's not one who began himself. He is the originator of all other things. Let me show you where this is seen in Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, you'll often see wisdom personified. Does everyone know what personification is? Personification is a literary device where you take a non-human being and you ascribe human qualities to them. Um, Sometimes we'll talk about our cars that way. Isn't she running great? Look at her purr and look, you know, we're personifying our vehicles, right? Well, here, wisdom is being personified by Solomon in Proverbs 8, 22 through 23. He says, the Lord. Now, remember, anytime you have all caps, that's Yahweh. So Yahweh, it says, possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting, I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. Now, notice here, this wisdom That was with Yahweh was with him when? From the beginning. The implication is that wisdom is eternal because it is at the right hand of Yahweh. It belongs to Yahweh. In fact, notice the phrase here in verse 23 from everlasting I was established. Now, what's very interesting is when you get into the New Testament, then we start to see that this wisdom that was with Yahweh from the beginning. Wasn't just some attribute, but rather was the Son. The fullest expression of the wisdom of Yahweh is the second person of the Trinity. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22 through 24. As you turn to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 24, remember the Corinthian Christians were boasting in their wisdom. They were boasting in Sophia. That's the Greek term for wisdom. And Paul has to remind them that the true wisdom of God is found where? In Jesus, who died on the cross. That's foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it's the very power and wisdom of God. So listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. Paul says, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called... Well, let's stop there. There's two different types of callings, right? There's a universal call. All who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a universal call, but then there is an effectual call that is for God's elect. That's the calling that's being referred to here. Those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So where is wisdom ultimately found? It's found in Christ. Turn your Bibles again to Colossians 2.3. Colossians 2.3, if you turn there, you'll see the same idea that in Christ, it says Colossians 2.3, in him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So this wisdom that's being personified here by Proverbs that was eternal with Yahweh, in the New Testament we see that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And he is the fullest expression of wisdom. And so again... That's this idea of being at the beginning. Not that Jesus began at some point in history, but yet he he's the originator of all things. He's the eternal one. In fact, we see this in Colossians 1.18. Notice the descriptions of Christ. Uh, Bob just preached on this in the Christ hymn. Colossians 1.18, he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, notice here, the source, the idea of him being the beginning, is, again, not the idea that he came into existence, but that he's primary. Okay, notice he's the head of the body, which is what? The church. He's the head of it. Well, he's also the beginning, meaning he didn't come into being, but that he's the source or the originator. He's the firstborn from the dead. Remember, the firstborn is what? the preeminent one. The firstborn son has the right to everything. So if you talked in the ancient Near East, if you talked about the firstborn with the Israelites, the emphasis on the firstborn isn't that they're the first out of the shoot, so to speak, although that certainly is how they become the firstborn technically. But immediately their minds go to they're the preeminent one. They have the rights, the inheritance. It's that idea. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. In fact, listen to this great scholar, Peter O'Brien. He says, when you add up all these descriptions of he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the head of the body, he says this. He says, quote, "...it means that the resurrection age has burst forth, and as the firstfruits of those who have risen from those who have fallen asleep, he says, he is the firstfruits who guarantees the future resurrection of all others." Unquote. What I love about that quote is when he says, this is the resurrection age having burst forth. So Jesus here is being described as the originator of all things, and he's the one who's creating a new humanity in the church, isn't he? So just as the old creation is fading away, he's the head of the church, and he's making a new creation. One day the heavens and the earth will pass away, and he's going to have new heavens and a new earth. So think about you and I are belonging to this one who not only created all things initially, but is also creating all things new. So that's the descriptions of the beginning. So again, why does Jesus use this this in Revelation 3.14 to show the uniqueness of himself? The Laodiceans were yawning. So yeah, we've got Jesus, but we also have these angels, we have these other deities, and they're helping us have a bumper crop. Look at our cash flow this year. And so Jesus was just one among many. They yawned at him. Let me show you another reference to the beginning. John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. Now let's just stop there. The term word, logos. I remember R.C. Sproul wrote in his classical apologetics book that you could literally say that Jesus is the logic. He is the very wisdom of God. He is the reason why all things were created. In fact, he is the one who creates all things. So here we have the divine logos, the personification of wisdom that occurred in Proverbs 8 is now seen in the Son. He says the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that, was, that has come into being. Notice here he was in the beginning with God verse 2. Does everybody see verse 2? Well right there that shows you that he has to be eternal. Right? Did God ever have a beginning? Did he ever come into being at a point in time? No, he's the self-existent one. And so the same thing then is true of the Son. Notice verse 3. Oops. Verse 3 says, all things came into being through him. So right there, it says that Jesus created all other things. So it shows you that he's the source, the originator, not the first of creation in the sense that he himself was created. One key phrase that I want to just focus on for just a moment is, notice in John 1.1, 1, 1, It says, and the word was God. Martin Luther called this the most succinct theological statement in the entire Bible. And the reason he said that is because there's multiple heresies that are refuted by the word order in the Greek. Now, there's a rule, and I'll sometime diagram this for you because it's actually very exciting. You can get excited about grammar. Did you know that in the Bible? (laughs) Well, here... There is a rule, and I'll just cite it for you just so you know that there's a real rule. There was a man named Colwell. Now, I, I'm always amazed by these men who, many, many years ago, before they had Logos software, like Bob and I do, they were able to figure out these grammatical rules. I can hardly get a gas grill together, and these guys were coming up with these great grammatical rules. Here's the grammatical rule. There was a man named Colwell, and he discovered that anytime you had an arthris, Pre-verbal predicate nominative, it was almost always qualitative, yeah. (laughs) Now, what does that mean? Yeah, that'll get you going. Anarthrous means without the article. Pre-verbal means the predicate nominative. If you answer the phone and say, I had a um, person call me the other day. They wanted to do a study of some kind. And they said, is Eric here? And I said, this is him. And I said, oh, that's bad grammar. I said, I apologize. It's the predicate nominative. I said, this is he. Now, why did I use he? Because it's the predicate nominative, right? Well, we have a predicate nominative in this sentence. Notice this is the subject, right? We have a verb of being, and then we have our predicate nominative. Well, let's just say this. The debate is on how we translate God. And we can translate it three different ways. We can say, a God like the Jehovah Witnesses do, we can say the God, or we can translate it as it is in the New American Standard Bible and every other responsible English translation as God. Now, why should it be rendered God? Well, because of Colwell's rule. Okay, now we'll diagram this sometime and explain why, but let's go through the other options. Let's say we translate it and said, and the word was a God. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses do in their New World Translation. Well, if it's a God, we would have a small g God, would we not? You have one God, and you have another God. He's a God. The problem with that is it violates the first commandment. Thou shall have no other gods before me. So right away, we would have sin being alluded to in John one. 1. Well, that's eliminated outright, okay? Well, the grammatical rule that I just espoused to you shows us that can't be really a possibility, Now, the other possibilities, we could translate it, and the word was the God. But again, Colwell's rule, which I decided to you, says, no, that's really not a possibility. Why is that important that it's not the God? Because if it's the God, the, the God here really represents the Father. Well, the word is Jesus. And so if Jesus is the Father, now you have a heresy known as Sabellianism. What's Sibelianism? Well, Sibelius was a heretic who said God just puts on different costumes. Sometimes he's the father, and then there's other times where he takes that costume on and he puts the costume on of the son. And then sometimes he takes that off and he puts on the costume of the Holy Spirit. So there's one God in one person who just changes costumes. Yes, we got a question back there from Luann. So just in day-to-day kinds of stuff, what you're describing would be like Oneness Pentecostal T.D. Jakes. Exactly right, yes. Another term for Sabellianism is called modalistic monarchianism. Now I, now, I know that sounds like a mouthful, but it's actually easier to remember because think of modalistic modes. They change modes. And monarchianism is king. So the king changes modes. But yeah, um, Oneness Pentecostals would hold to that view. So here's the point. Colwell's rule rules out that it should be the God or a God, but instead, God here is thought of as qualitatively identical with the Word. So here's the point of this. What the Word is, the second person in the Trinity, is such that he he has the same quality as God the Father, but he's not the Father. Is everybody with me? So that succinct grammatical rule there rules out Sabellianism, and it rules out Arianism, all in one false swoop. Jesus is fully God, but he is not the Father. Do you see how wonderful that is? All in one sentence. That's how beautifully compact John 1, 1 is. And so again, the beginning is something that alludes to Jesus' uniqueness. He is God, and he created all other things. And so that's why Jesus is alluding to that in verse 14 of Revelation 3. Why? Because we shouldn't yawn at Jesus. All right, now, the lukewarm Laodiceans, what were these rascals up to? Well, he says, verses 15 through 16, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, or, I'm sorry, cold nor hot. I wish that you were hot or cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Wow. He's going to spit them out. Out of his mouth. Why? Because they're neither cold nor hot. Yeah. Translation: Vomit. I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He's. Thank you. (laughs) Exactly. You're you're right, Rich. Yeah. He's going to vomit them out. Now, here's the idea. What we want to do is define what it is that Jesus is upset about. He is upset that they are lukewarm. Now, there are two different interpretations as to what it means to be lukewarm and not hot or cold. And here's the first interpretation. The first one is that Christ could stand it if they were either spiritually hot or cold, but he can't stand indifference. Okay? Now, the problem with that view is we don't see in the scriptures that there is any time where Christ is, or any of the apostles talk about being spiritually cold, now, there is a term in Romans 12:11. Who had Romans 12:11? Paul did. Yeah. We'll get him the um, mic if we could, Rich, thanks. Listen to Romans 12, 11. You're going to hear a term that's used for being zealous, having zeal in the spirit. That is a verb that's kind of related to being hot. So go ahead and read that. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Yeah, never be lacking in zeal and your spiritual, spiritual fervor. Those items would, would be a cognate of the idea here of hot, but I don't think that that's very weighty. Okay, that's all we have. We don't have the opposite. Cold isn't ever mentioned as being something that is either good or bad spiritually. Okay? Now, let me show you the other view. This is the view that I would hold to, and that is hot and cold is a play on the water supply. They were like their own water supply They were lukewarm and worthless. So here's the problem with number one. Think about number one. The first option is that, can you imagine a time where Jesus would say, look, I could accept it if you were hot spiritually for me, and I could accept it if you would reject me, you were cold, but that you're indifferent, I can't stand. Can you imagine Jesus accepting people who are indifferent to him? No, people who are indifferent to him, who don't like him or cold towards him, they go to hell. Okay, So I think number two is really the only good option here. The hot and cold is a play on their water supply. The Laodiceans were known for having a horrible water supply. And so I think that it's obvious that that's what Christ is making a play on. Let me show you a map here. Here you have Philadelphia. That was the church that we had looked at last time. Well, now we're down in Laodicea. This is in the Lycus River Valley. Notice Heropolis, six miles to the north, they had hot water, wonderful hot springs, and hot springs are known as being therapeutic. They're healing waters. Uh, you and I use the same thing today. Oh, I can't wait to get in the hot tub. My back is killing me or whatever. They had hot water. Okay, well, at Colossae, they had the most wonderful cold springs, and cold water was known as life-giving. If you were thirsty... In the Mediterranean sun, you wanted cold, life-giving water. So cold water was life-giving. Hot water was therapeutic. But what were the Laodiceans? They were just like their water supply. The water supply to Laodicea was piped in from Hierapolis six miles. And so it began very hot, but by the time it got to Laodicea, it was really lukewarm, and it was horrible. There was a lot of sediment in it lukewarm water full of sediment. Can you imagine drinking that every day? So here you have these wealthy people who have everything else, and every day they have this horrible water. They grumbled about it. They couldn't take it. If they had anything else to drink, they'd spit this out. And Jesus is saying about them, that's how he feels about them. So you see, it's not the idea then that he wants them either to be for him hot or against him cold. But what he's saying is you're neither life-giving nor are you therapeutic, you're worthless. They are worthless, yeah.
1: Yeah, this is important teaching. If you look at our CIC website, you'll find an article that was written by Ryan Habana on this. (coughs) Excuse me. And it's also consequential. I've talked to more than one person who is harmed by... A false application of this yeah. especially when they were younger yeah and they're saying well you know if you aren't totally on fire for god or whatever yeah. in some kind of a however they met by that right well then you might as well just go out and live for the devil and god would be more happy with you that way wow and uh that has caused horrible harm and shipwreck for people right Because they think they'll never be hot enough and on fire enough that God would ever be interested in them. And then they just... Cold is easier. ...give up. And that's not the intent of the passage. So, uh, dear brothers and sisters, it's important that we understand the Scripture correctly. Amen. Because whatever we don't, it does have consequences.
0: That's right. Absolutely. If we don't get our exegesis right, meaning pulling out from the text what's there, then we're not going to have our theology right, we're not going to live right. So we have to get it right. So now notice here, Jesus rebuke then against the Laodiceans. It's not a rebuke, I don't think, against them being worthless in the sense that they weren't doing enough. The rebuke, I think, is that they didn't belong to him. Because he was just one among many, other deities and angels that they worshipped, I think it's fair to say that the majority of the Laodiceans didn't have the true Christ. And that's why he could genuinely spit them out. Now, we see further evidence of that in the following diagnosis that Jesus gives. Notice he says in verse 17, he says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind, And naked, and then he goes on. But we'll stop there. Notice the boast of those at Laodicea was that they were rich, and that they have become wealthy. What's interesting is, wouldn't you expect to have have become wealthy happen before I am rich? In other words, you become wealthy before you're rich, right? Well, this is an example of a a a common. This is kind of a common usage thing that uh, John uses. It's a. A grammatical thing called hysteron proteron. It just since, simply means the latter before the former. Okay, in other words, th- turn your Bibles to Revelation five two. Oh, I've got it here, Revelation five two. That I was gonna have to look it up. I'm gonna give you an example of this. Notice you technically become wealthy before you're rich. So he mentions the latter first. Well, he does this all the way through scripture in the book of Revelation. Notice in Revelation 5, 2, if everyone's turned to that, John says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now, notice you have to first break the seals before you open the book. But the Hysteron Proteron, the latter coming before, it gives emphasis to the opening of the book. Who's worthy? Jesus is. And by the way, that's why all the judgments are seen as coming from Jesus. It's not the wrath of man; it's the wrath of God, because He opens the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Who do do they come from? Jesus, because He's the one who's worthy of opening the book. So I think this hysteron proteron is used to just accentuate the fact that these people are what they're rich, and they're rich without Jesus Christ. They're sufficient in their own eyes. In fact, notice the phrase "have become wealthy." That verb, have become wealthy, is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense has to do with something that was completed in the past, but it has present-day consequences. So think about Jesus' justification is once and for all. His crucifixion on the cross was once and for all in the past. It was completed, and its ramifications are always with us to this day. You and I are always saved because of the finished work of Christ. That would be the idea of the perfect tense. But here, the Laodiceans aren't boasting in the cross of Christ and his finished work. They're boasting in their finished work. This is Antichrist. This is them boasting in human works. If you want to know the pinnacle of works based salvation, here you have it. They have become wealthy and they need nothing more. In fact, one scholar said the Implication of this is as follows. They would be claiming, my wealth is due to my own exertions. It wasn't because of Jesus. It was because of them. All right? Notice the term wretched. Every time that wretched is typically used in the Old Testament Septuagint, this term in the Greek or in the New Testament, it often has to do with somebody that's under the wrath of God. In fact, listen to what Paul says here In Romans 7, 24, he says, "'O wretched man that I am, "'who will set me free from the body of this death?' Now, as Paul is saying, "'O wretched man that I am,' in Romans 7, "'Romans 7 is in contrast to Romans 8. "'Romans 7 is talking about "'trying to be right with God using the law. "'And when he asks this question, "'O wretched man that I am, "'who will set me free from the body of this death?' The answer is Jesus Christ did, and the new system is the system of the Spirit, not the Mosaic covenant. So, the answer to this notice, Paul is saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, why is he wretched? Because if he remains in the system of the law, because he is a sinner, he cannot justify himself, and the wrath of God remains upon him. And so, over and over in the Septuagint, when we see this term wretched, by the way, in the Greek, it's talai poros. To lay poros: every time you see that term it's typically someone who is suffering because of the wrath of god being poured out turn your bibles to zephaniah 115 <laughs> zephaniah 115 remember zephaniah the big theme there? Is about it's about the day of the lord that's what it's all about written during the reforms of josiah in the 600 bc region zephaniah 115 the prophet Zephaniah says, he's talking about the day of the Lord. He says, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress. There you have in the Septuagint the term here for wretched. Those who are under the day of wrath have a wretched condition. James 5.1, you can just jot that down. I'll read it. James says to the wealthy who are abusing Christians, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, there's their wretched condition, because of your wretched condition, which is coming upon you. Eight verses later, he talks about Jesus being at the door for judgment. So over and over and over, uh, let me just read the verses for you. Isaiah 47:11, Jeremiah 6, 7, Jeremiah 15:8, Jeremiah 20, verse 8, Amos 5, 9, Micah 2, 4, Joel 1, 15, James 5, 1. It's all over the place. If you are in a wretched condition, it is because the wrath of God is upon you. And so I think here what... Jesus is pointing out in Revelation 3.17 is these people don't belong to him. They had self-sufficiency, but they didn't have Christ. And therefore, they were in a wretched condition. So let me diagram, I think, the situation that we have here. The Laodiceans had this view. They thought that they had self-achieved spiritual protection. How? They thought, you know what, the demons control my fate. I'll go to this local deity temple or I'll incite the angels to protect me. And so they would do all these aesthetic practices. They would have amulets, different formulas that they would say. They would have different religious practices in which they would develop favor with these angels who would protect them from the demonic realm. And therefore, they had self-achieved spiritual protection. And because they did that, they had physical wealth. So their physical wealth was a direct result, not of God's blessing, unmerited favor, or the provision of Christ for his people. It was their own doing. Yes, they may have began with Jesus in name only, but they certainly didn't have the true Jesus. The Jesus that saves is also the Jesus that provides, the one who sanctifies, the one who brings us to glory. And so the biblical view is that Christ saves and provides for his people. And so what Paul is trying to do is he is trying to bring them over to the biblical view. They are outside of it drastically. Let me give you a story. I want you to see in in, in redemptive history, this is a big problem where people begin with Christ and then they leave him. They begin with God and then they go on to something else. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 7? In Isaiah chapter 7, you have the famous Emmanuel prophecy. It's the prophecy of the virgin birth. Emmanuel means what? God is with us. And the major fulfillment of that Emmanuel theology is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes in the flesh, and forevermore we can say, for those who trust in Him, God is with us. God is with us because He has given us His favor, that is, for those who trust in Him. Well, remember the historical background to that prophecy. You have a king named Ahaz. He's in the lineage of David. The Messiah will one day come from him. But he has a practical problem. He has neighbors to the north, the kingdom of Samaria, that want to decimate him, the leader of Judah. So Ahaz has a choice. And Isaiah asks, I'm sorry, the Lord asks Isaiah to tell Ahaz that he can come to Yahweh for protection. So Ahaz, here he belongs in the lineage of David. The great promise is one day the Messiah is going to come from him. He is ruling over the kingdom of Judah. But he doesn't trust in Yahweh. What does he do? Well, he's got practical problems. I mean, here, look at these rascals coming from the north. They're going to kill us. And the Assyrians are the biggest, baddest boys in the block. He goes to Assyria. And so he trusts in Assyria rather than trusting in Yahweh. And what ends up happening to Judah? Well, in 586 B.C., they end up being destroyed because of it. You see, he began perhaps with Yahweh, but he didn't finish with them. Think about the Israelites in the wilderness. They were walking out their salvation in the wilderness, but they didn't do it so well, did they? Yes, God brought them out of Egyptian captivity supernaturally, but then they grumbled against him and they didn't finish well. And they fell because of unbelief in the wilderness. Jesus is saying the same thing to the people at Laodicea. He has to be not only the one who saves, but the one who sanctifies, the one who provides, and the one who glorifies. Christ is sufficient in all things. Yeah. I think another idea too, and I think this is where the evangelical church goes astray in our today's world right through this Laodicea verse, is that... We don't understand our total depravity. We don't understand we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Right. Hey, if we get the right guy in the pulpit with the right energy, yeah. we'll get him signed up, we'll get him saved, we'll have him come forward, they'll accept Jesus, and everybody will be happy.
1: Yeah.
0: We don't understand. You can't do this. This is impossible for man. This yes. is only impossible with God, because we're dead in trespasses and sins. So it's not even starting with Christ. It's we never even started with Christ. Yeah. We started with ourself plus Christ. It's a hybrid type Christianity. It's not even Jesus Christ. It's like, well, you, we got the energy. We can do this. We can do this. Right. It's like, no, you can't. And this is what we don't understand. We can't do it. Amen. Amen. Christ is sufficient for all things. That's right. Um, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of that passage Bob taught on it in Galatians. Remember Galatians 3.3? 3, 3, Paul says to those in Galatia, how is it that you who began by the Spirit are now trying to be perfected in the flesh? They also began with Christ in their justification by the Spirit. But what did they go on to do? They said, well, we need circumcision. We need this aspect of the law. And Paul says to them, what? If you want to have circumcision, you better keep the whole law. Now, what's the problem with keeping the whole law? Can you do it? No. So, what's being juxtaposed in Galatians 3.3 is the same issue here. It's the same issue in Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7. It's the same issue all the way back in the Exodus. If you begin with Christ, you don't go on to a different system. That's what Bob has been teaching us in the book of Galatians. Think about Galatians 3.3. 3. You began by the Spirit. Why did they begin by the Spirit? It's a system. The Spirit did what the law could not. The Holy Spirit came and regenerated wretched sinners who could not come to faith on their own. And so the Holy Spirit regenerated people, enabling them to believe. And when they believed upon Jesus Christ, they were saved. That's the system of the Spirit. And what Paul was saying is, you don't leave that in your sanctification. So then why is it that people want to go back to the law? Why is it that people say, you know, I have some other sufficiency outside of Jesus Christ himself? No, there isn't any. You can't leave Christ. I think that's a big takeaway from the book here in the issues with Laodicea. All right, now, what's the remedy? It's faith in Christ alone. He says, here's the remedy. I advise you, this is the advice of Jesus to those who are in Laodicea. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Right now, let's talk about this gold refined by fire. The idea of gold refined by fire as it's used in the New Testament and the Old is it's often something very precious. And it's something that is typically akin to faith. For instance, we'll see this in 1 Peter. So this idea of having gold that's precious is the idea of having saving faith. But why does he say it's gold refined by fire? Because true believers who come to faith will end up suffering persecution and trials in this world. And God uses that fire, and we see this especially in the book of 1 Peter, to refine them and also to demonstrate that their faith is genuine. And so that's what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to faith. In fact, let me just show you 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 7. In fact, before I read this, turn your Bibles, if you will. I want you to see the context here. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 1, 3. I won't even read all of it. I don't have all of it on my my screen here, but I have 1 Peter 1 3 and then I skip to verse 6. I want to show you what happens before 1 Peter 1 7. 1 Peter 1 3. Notice here, Peter is blessing God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, let's stop there in verse 3. Who's responsible for salvation? God alone. That's the system of the Spirit. How is it that you who began by the Spirit, what does the Spirit do? He brings you to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's the work of God. So, salvation is of God. Now, notice in verse 6, I skipped down to that. It says, in this, that is the salvation that they have, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been distressed by various trials. What's the purpose of the trials? To demonstrate our faith is genuine. That's the refining fire. Okay? Now, notice he says in verse 6, if necessary. In Greek, that's D-E-I, if we were to transliterate it, day. Why is that important? That has to do with the divine necessity. So, in other words, in verse 6, what Peter is saying is, if by divine necessity he has decreed that you should suffer in your faith then you will. But you'll be made better for it. That's the whole point because your faith will be demonstrated to be real. And so then in verse 7, oops, I had verse 7 up already. Verse 7, he says, so that, here's the purpose of their going through trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what Jesus is offering the Laodiceans. He's offering them saving faith. That's what they need. They need to come to Christ alone. All right, now, the final coup de grace here in this whole passage is Jesus' offer of table fellowship. And this is another passage that's been very controversial. Let me read it, and I'll explain why it's controversial. Revelation 3, 19 through 20 Jesus goes on to give this promise. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. Now, there's two different possible interpretations of this passage. The first one is the idea that what's being offered here is salvation to unbelievers by Jesus. And the idea would be, and this isn't my view, but the idea of, by those who hold to this view is that Jesus is standing on the outside of someone's heart and he's knocking, And if they will open the door to their heart, he will come in and the implication is that they will be saved. Okay? The second view, and this is the view that I hold to, is that this is really an offer of true fellowship to perhaps true believers who were still in Laodicea. Okay? So is it an offer of salvation to unbelievers or is it an offer of true table fellowship to believers rather than unbelievers and i think it's the latter does that make sense now let me let me explain why i think this is first of all notice the phrase those whom i love the verb there phileo has to do with familial love now why is that important well who's in the family of god are they believers or unbelievers well they're believers aren't they Now, as I say this, listen to me very carefully. Phileo, the verb that's used here, can be used and often is used interchangeably with the verb agapao. Everyone's heard of the nouns agape love versus phile love. Agape love is typically a love for people without merit. They don't have any merit. You love them unconditionally. Phile love is typically a familial love. That's why we have the Church of Philadelphia. That's brotherly love. It's within the family. Now, we have to be very careful because in the New Testament, they often can be used interchangeably. But there's one thing I think that we can be safe and say, and this comes from Dan Wallace himself, the great scholar. He wrote a book called Beyond the Basics, a grammar for uh, New Testament Greek. But listen to what he says. He says, quote, Never does God or Jesus use phileo, Referring to their love for unbelievers in the New Testament, unquote. So here's one thing that we can say if we limit our focus to God and Jesus, they're both God, so the Father and Jesus, their love for people in the New Testament, that verb phileo is never used of unbelievers when they're the subjects and they are loving an object. The object is always believers. So right away that should clue us in on that, Jesus is offering something here probably to believers. Now, in and of itself, I don't think that that's necessarily absolutely convincing. But let me show you more evidence. Notice here in verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, this isn't the door of the heart, as many Arminians would want you to believe, to say, look, he stands at the heart, or the, the, the door of your heart and he's knocking, and you have the authority to open up the door to, to keep it shut. No, The door that he's standing at is the eschatological door. It's the door that he will one day break through as he comes. And that is the theme throughout the book of Revelation. His coming is imminent. It is at hand. In fact, notice where he says, behold, I stand at the door. Stand at the door is a perfect tense verb. Remember, I just described the importance of the perfect tense. The perfect tense has to do with something that was complete. That's why it's perfect in the past. But it has ramifications that are always with us to the present. What is the ramification of the perfect work of Christ on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension up into the heavens? That work that was perfect in the past, it was completed, means he's always the one who's standing at the door. It's always the condition that we live in. In fact, listen to what James says, James 5, 9. He says to us, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Over and over again in the book of Revelation, when Jesus says, behold, or someone says, behold, John, an angel. Notice we have behold here in verse 20. Listen to all the behold statements. Revelation 1-7, it's about the imminent coming of Christ. Behold, Revelation 1-7 says, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Revelation 16, 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Revelation 22, 12, behold, I am coming quickly. So behold even tips us off that what is the issue, the issue at hand is his coming through the door to judge those who are on the earth. It's not a Jesus standing on the outside of someone's heart. Okay, now let me show you one other item here. Notice in the box, this is very important Notice it says his promise is that if they hear his voice, they open the door, he says, I will come in to him. Notice it does not say, Come into him. In other words, the in and the two are separated. Does everybody see the difference? Many Arminians will say, He comes into you. I-N-T-O, altogether. Into would be the piercing inside the person. That would be the preposition ace. That Jesus is saying, I will come into you personally. But here, the preposition that's being used is pros. In the implication, he's coming into the room. He's in the presence of them, but he's not piercing the inside. So the N.S.B. rightly has it in space to him. The idea is in the presence of him. It's not into him as if he's piercing inside the person. And so that's further implication that Christ is saying, I want to dine with you. So the sad irony is, think about this. You, perhaps this is my reconstruction of the issue at Laodicea. The Laodiceans don't need Jesus. The majority of them don't have Jesus. But there are perhaps a few who, in that congregation, see the truth. And they're being invited. Yes, Dan.
1: I thought that meant that he uh, was knocking on the door to the church lady to see and if there's any believers inside, they would open the door for him.
0: I think that's very, very close to the issue. Exactly. He's offering table fellowship to them. And so who does he have table fellowship with? Well, those who belong to him. And so think about it this way. You have a few believers within the congregation that they are really genuine believers. And so the offer to them, remember the elect... Those who belong to him will respond to his encouragement. The unelect, the unregenerate, they don't care about these warnings. But those who belong to him do. And what he's offering them is in the near term, if they will have table fellowship with him, what he's promising is that one day when he comes through that door, they're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're going to have the eschatological banquet with him. And so I think you're exactly right. Yep. Yeah, Peter.
1: Not to uh, look for a big summarization statement, but aren't you really saying here it's the spirit of the law in relationship to the letter? As far as um, sanctification? Yeah, sanctification or your, uh, your diagram here.
0: Yeah, let's go back. Yeah, let, me, let, me, let me talk about that. I'm glad you asked that question. Let's go back to Galatians 3.3. 3. How is it that you began by the Spirit, that sphere, that system, are now trying to be perfected by the flesh? If you begin by the system of the Spirit, you have to end with it. You have to live out your life that way. So, the Spirit brings you to faith in Jesus Christ for justification. So, we have to have the same thing now in our sanctification. So if we believe the promise of God in Jesus Christ for salvation, sanctification then is not unrelated to faith as well. Why is it that the Israelites fell in the wilderness? In Hebrews 3, at the end of it, it says because of unbelief. If you don't believe the promises of God, you say, I'll live for here and now. The battle in sanctification is a battle to believe. And so what Bob has been teaching us in sanctification and the means of grace is the means are the tools by which we can devote ourselves the lord's supper we're going to be celebrating that today fellowship prayer the apostles teaching the word of god these are the tools by which god reminds us of the promises so that he can operate in our hearts giving us the faith to believe and if we have the faith to believe we act on it you will only act on what you really believe Okay. Uh, Think about the the guy who says he goes across Niagara Falls, remember the wheelbarrow? How many think that I can go across the Niagara Falls with this wheelbarrow? They all clap, we think you can do it. he says, who wants to get in? And if they don't get in, do they really believe that he can do it? You and I are asked to get in the wheelbarrow to act on what we really believe. Yeah, but we might get
1: nervous and start shaking and drop both of us. Yeah. Okay. In Galatians, we were doing radio. This isn't on yet, and we just recorded and I edited it. We're talking about walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5. That's the central command. Walk in the Spirit. In the book of Galatians. Yes. Is to walk in the Spirit. And there's a promise with it, and you shall not fulfill. lust of the flesh. With the teleo. Yeah. uh, The lust of the flesh. Amen. Oops, we lost Peter. Anyhow, (laughs) it's important to realize that Paul emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Right, yes. And that he says, I have a question to ask you, Galatians. How did you receive Christ? How did you receive the Spirit? Right. By believing or through works of the flesh or works of the law? Right. So synonymous, synonymous. Two
0: systems in contrast. Amen. If I willfully yeah. sin, is it an unbelief start over? If I willfully sin is it a lack of faith? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it always ties into what we believe. Yep. Absolutely. They're never um, that's one thing when you read the old and new testament, belief and what you do are always linked together. Think about Abraham, he's justified by faith alone Genesis 15:6. Genesis 22, he's willing to sacrifice his son. Why? Because he really believes. He really believes. Hebrews 11:19 says, the writer of Hebrews says, he even believed in the resurrection. Abraham knew, he believed God, that yes, Messiah's coming from my lineage. Therefore, if I have to sacrifice my son from whom the promises come, he has to raise him up from the dead. And so his belief led to action. So that's why James and Paul aren't at odds with one another. Paul emphasizes Genesis 15, Abraham was saved by faith alone. James says, yes, but he acted on that faith, Genesis 22, and he's willing to sacrifice his son. Why? Because he really believed. (laughs) If you don't say, no, I'm not going to sacrifice my son, this is crazy talk, it's evidence you don't really believe the promises of God. That's, That's the idea. Yep. So, brothers and sisters, let me just put it all together. The Laodiceans need Christ. And if you begin with Christ in your justification, remember, in your daily walk, your provision, your business, everything that you do in life, He's sufficient. He is the one who is going to bring you to glory. You don't have to go anywhere else. You have all you need in Him. He saved you. He's sanctifying you. He's providing for you, and He will glorify you. Thank you Lord. Yes, amen. Let's just close in prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the God who not only saved us from our sin, but continuously conforms us to your own image. We thank you, Lord, that you're also the one who provides for us. We often don't give you praise and honor and thanksgiving for all the blessings. They all come from your hand. There's not one single single random molecule in the universe. You control it all. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you do work out all things for the good for those who love you, called according to your purpose. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.